G'day. Welcome back to the Humans of Agriculture podcast. Today, I am on Wajak Noongar country over here in Perth, and I'd like to extend my respects on the lands wherever you take our podcast. I think it's just something really special with podcasts is that we can travel across so much of the country using stories to share knowledge and create connections, and it's something which I just love hearing and seeing the impact of it. This week, I'm sitting down with Ben Dwight, and Ben's someone I got to know during our time filming the Harvest Road video. His career in Australian agriculture is bloody cool, and Ben's just a top fella, and I'm really looking forward to sharing this chat with you. Ben is the Chief Operating Officer of Agribusiness at Harvest Road. He's a seasoned executive, having led major Australian agribusiness operations. At his core, though, Ben is a stockman and has a passion for raising cattle, growing a high-performance team, and doesn't mind the odd cross-country trip in a truck. Well, Ben, welcome to the Humans of Agriculture podcast. Your role's changed basically since last time I saw you. Similar but different. Chief Operating Officer of Agribusiness here at Harvest Road. And I think, Ben, I'm really excited to be sitting down with you. And I think for every podcast I try and have, it's a conversation that there's something I want to get out of it. When I got the chance to travel around with you and the team, there was something, I think, with the culture that you and, and the other leaders have built, which I kind of went back. I think it drove my team nuts where I just was so inspired coming into Christmas and we wanted to hit the ground running. But I'm interested to hear a little bit about your career and journey and the way it's gone. But how's the year kicked off for you? Well, it started fairly wet. We had, had the flood at Jubilee, which is up on the Fitzroy River in the Kimberley. So that put us under a bit of pressure early for the year, but we've sort of recovered from that. So the rain in the Kimberley is a great start and we've had reasonably good rain in the Pilbara. And a great start down in the southern area for summer as well. So we're off to a great start. And for you, you had a, a pretty good job. I'd say there's probably not too many C-suite executives working in agriculture that get the Christmas job of going and managing a station. <laughs> How was that? It was good fun. So I started my management career up at Springvale. So it was a little bit of a journey back to where we started in management. So Tamara and I went up there to look after it. And the plan was only to be there for a week or two. And the Aaron and Tash land were coming up from Brickhouse to manage Springvale. The flood hit the Fitzroy River, the bridge washed out, so I had to stay there while Aaron Tash rerouted down through South Australia, up through the Territory and across to Springvale, so that took another 14 days to get that sorted out, so I was there for a, a few weeks longer than, than planned, but look, it was great fun. It's a um, beautiful time in the Kimberleys, it was wet, so there wasn't a lot to do other than watch the grass grow and watch the cattle get fat, and I was supposed to do some flood fences, but it was always too wet for me to do that. If we had to ask Tamara, your wife about it. Would she say this is typical, Ben, where you plan for a week and go for a month? <laughs> yeah, pretty much. She, it would be something that she'd probably say is right up his alley, like most people go to the coast or somewhere cool like that for Christmas, but I decided to go up onto a cattle station in the middle of Kimberley's. That's, she'd probably let you know all about that. <laughs> what kind of havoc did the floods have on the property? Uh, and nothing at Springvale, probably due to the terrain, and it, it's probably built to handle that. It drains very well. At Jubilee, it was just a higher flood than normal. So Jubilee, or well, the Fitzroy Valley floods regularly. This one was was a higher flood with a more intense rainfall up in the catchment. So the water came up a lot faster. There wasn't the uh, the few days warning that we'd normally get. However, Hamish, who's the general manager of the extensive business, and Adam, who manages Jubilee, were well prepared. They were watching the weather all the way through, and that's one of the the disciplines that we love to have in the business where the guys watch any triggers that can affect negatively or positively. So they kicked into a moving of cattle plan and getting 
plant and equipment and buildings ready. So when the water did rise, the head stockman and his partner, Freddie and Liv, were there. They did everything they could. Chopper came in and airlifted them out. And so when the water peaked, and then I was fortunate enough to be over at Springvale on the eastern side, so you couldn't really get in from the western side because that's where the weather was going. So a guy that had been doing a lot of work for us who also has his own chopper, Lindsay Ward, we flew across from the east so we could get in, dodged a few storms. So as the water was peaking, we was on site. And, you know, we've got stakeholder management to do. So I was on the phone on the veranda at Jubilee with the boat tied up at the front of the office talking to the owners and the other executives in the business, letting them know where we were up to. So it was real-time reporting. <laughs> Luckily, you didn't have the ABC trying to get hold of you or something, find out what was happening. Yeah, well, I probably would have gone to message bank. So it wasn't an overly re- relaxing Christmas for you? Ah, well, it was it, it was okay. It was good. Depends what you call relaxing. Yeah. What do you do to relax? What's your idea of a holiday? Depends where I'm up to, you know, f- physically tired or mentally tired. So at different times, just going and kicking back where there's very little activity. A beach is great because it's so different to what we do every day. Time with you know, obviously with my wife in the job that I've had for the last, I don't know, 10 or 12 years, you're away a lot. And even when you're at home, sometimes you're away. So mentally you're, you're a bit tied up. So I like to go somewhere where you can just unwind and spend some time with her. You know, I'm really fortunate there. I've married someone I love, but also my best friend. So it's pretty easy for us to, this is according to me too, Ollie. So you'd have to ask tomorrow, but <laughs> pretty easy to just chill out. So where, where we can just get away and really do not a lot. But then there's other times where I want to be full on doing really exciting stuff and not have a moment to think. So it just depends where I'm up to at that point in time. Okay. Maybe we'll track you over the year and see. We'll be able to tell you tell where you're at by the holidays you're taking. Yeah, that's right. I'm keen to understand where like the early influences of agriculture in you because I think your career over, what's it been, 30, 30, 40 years? A while. 30-something. Let's not get into the detail. <laughs> but like, I think you've progressed a long way, but this early interest in ag, what was it? Um, I think growing up in, in a rural town in New South Wales and going to primary school with guys, you know, farm-based guys in town and, and a father that was involved in the in the rural industry as an agent, livestock agent. That that was where it really started. I have a, you know, I've really enjoyed animals from a very young age. So, you know, I guess domestic animals, but then very young sheep and cattle and horses. So being somewhat introverted, I found a lot easier to hang out with cattle or sheep or horses than people. So um, that, that probably stemmed from it. And then I guess going again at a fairly young age away to a, a boarding school, you're sort of thrown in with a lot of rural guys in a very intense environment. So it was just, for me, it was pretty easy to to go down that path. And then really getting into the way environment and water cycles worked at school. So I guess it just led from there. And was it pretty obvious for you leaving high school that agriculture was going to be the pathway forward? Yeah, oh, very much so. So when I was finishing at my HSC, my parents were quite keen for me to go to uni and I was quite keen to get anywhere away from anything uni. So I made a compromise and went up to Longridge Pastoral College and then from there up into the Gulf working for a big pastoral company and then just onwards. The rest is history. <laughs> yeah. Did you ever like envision your career when you were sitting there at Riverview? I remember that. Like at high school. And I guess being in and around the city that there was opportunity in agriculture in the capital cities? Um, it was pretty evident. The school I went to was very open and, you know, they were very encouraging for any of their students to pursue what they needed to or wanted to from a personal perspective. So 
quite lucky that we weren't put in a box that we had to go to a certain career path because of our upbringing or conditioning through our life. So I was pretty lucky there that, and they probably picked up pretty early that I wasn't going to hang around the city. So the school and the people involved probably steered me around what I could do to go where I wanted to. But when I was, you know, that young, I certainly didn't think I'd be sitting in a capital city overlooking the Swan River, you know, with a few assets underneath me. That's not bad at all, is it? Yeah. Is the passion still the same as what it was for young young men who loved chatting and hanging out with the lifestyle? It's probably matured and evolved, thank God. But the passion's still there. I think as you get quite experienced or skilled with, say, the animals and the operational types of role, what's really developed is people and trying to get my interest in people in, in ag, particularly in the businesses that I've been involved with, to get them to understand and see the future of ag and the opportunities. So, yeah, it's probably evolved a little bit, but now I get a real buzz out of seeing a multitude of people succeeding and driving our industry further. How do you do that? Like as an introvert, introverted kid, was it something you just grew out of out of necessity that you decided one day, I'm going to grow out of this or what happened? Oh, I think there's a there was a phase where I started to work out that I got drained by being around a lot of people. So I was quite a sociable guy when I was young, like I didn't mind a party, but I found that I needed a few days after a few days of partying to, to recover. And that was a bit, and where I had friends, you know, later on I worked out they were extroverts, could just go from one party to the next and didn't need the downtime. And I guess personal development taught me that. I had, I had some very good mentors at that stage in my life that sort of worked out that the strong silent type was pretty good if you were the only one in the room, but if you had a stock camp or a, a team of people around you that you needed to drive to success or just even to get the job done, that the company, which was AA at the time, invested heavily in a lot of us on personal development and understanding who we were as people so they could get the most out of us and in turn us get the most out of people that we were you know, in charge of at the time, I guess. I'm interested, like going from being the paddock side, because you can grow a skill set where you the best stockman, et cetera, but then that people management piece is what, I guess, holds anyone back from being exceptional or ordinary. How did that transition go for you from stock camps and in paddocks to the other side? I think being fairly competitive played a big part in it. So sporting-wise or just in general being competitive, so wanting to be continually test yourself to be the best you can possibly be. And that's not suggesting that you always get to be the best you possibly can be because sometimes you're the owner of that thought. So I think it was just a progression piece. And then wanting, I guess, to have more influence over the outcome. So, you know, if you're a, as a head stockman, you can have influence over the outcome of the day-to-day operation of the stock camp or week-to-week of what you're doing, but then you don't have say in the ultimate outcome of the strategic plan for the next year. So it was progression to get, and when you get the taste of it, so you go from Headstock went to overseer and then you get a new learning of what that role or responsibility is. So you try and master that and then the next one is, you know, in the system I came through an assistant manager and that's another level and then manager and then you become a senior manager and that's when it really changes. So when you go from management to senior management, it becomes more about the strategic planning and the financial outcomes of the whole enterprise, not just the operational side of things. So, and then again, going to the next level GM and operating officer and CEO, it just changes. And you've got to want to understand what the skill sets are you need to get there. Sometimes that's hard. If you're running an operational business to actually take the time out to learn a new skill set, 
that you don't find in the field. It's sometimes you've really got to put yourself out there and be open. And I'm very fortunate that I had great mentors, I guess is the word we'd use now around me, that helped steer me in the right direction. So where did you find, like, I've got a couple of questions. One, the mentors, but let's talk about that, I guess, the toolkit to take that next step. Because I know it's something I've been chatting with friends about recently. I always question myself about it a little bit different with what I'm doing, I guess. But like for you to actually know what that skill set is that you need for that next role, like was that self-identified or was it someone leaning on your shoulder and saying? Probably a bit of both. So sitting back and observing what good look like from the next level up in management and then having a look at the people that that maybe I classed or probably more importantly that industry was recognised as being good at their role and then just observing them how and talking to them. So being bold enough to go up and ask them how they got there. If you like your own company, sometimes that can be pretty challenging going up to someone that you actually admire and engage in a conversation. What I did learn that most of the guys or most of the people that are in those roles love it when you actually go and talk to them. So they don't, you know, they don't look it down at you and tell you to go away. And if they do, you realise you've hit the wrong mark. They're not going to tell you anyway. But the guys and ladies that I did go up to and have a conversation with, they were so embracing of the fact that you actually took time to ask them. Sometimes they overshared, which was fantastic. You know, if you do everything right all the time, you don't really learn anything. So it's your, you know, for me, my monumental stuff ups have been the ones that have really taught me where to go and, or more importantly, where not to go. So if you don't take risks, you may not learn as much as you might <laughs> if you take a lot of risks. Now you've opened me up to a dangerous conduit here, Ben. No, without naming people, was there a conversation or a pivotal moment, like transition point in your career, I guess, where you went from being Ben to then, I guess, accelerating this pathway towards being a real leader in Australian agribusiness? Yeah, I, I think at a very at a young age, having an approach by by someone that I knew but didn't know well to head to the East Kimberleys and manage, you know, a property of one point you know, 1.6 million acres with 20-odd thousand head of cattle and to convert it to trying to have the best genetics and animal performance, that was the moment probably for me where I went, geez, you know, somebody has a bit of faith in in me and not just me. I was married to Tamara then, so she comes from this, from the industry, so in us as a couple and, and then it was nearly a, very much a case of bite it and it was the biggest chunk and just chew like hell to try and swallow it and that's what we ended up doing. But it was that leap of faith in someone else to suggest that I could do it mm. that really – and not wanting to fail. So being very competitive and not liking failure was a combination of those few things that went – probably spawned me on to be – to make the most of that opportunity. Do you think they saw something in you that maybe you didn't see? Like, Did you feel out of your depth in that role? Oh, unbelievably. I'd say for the first – and again, I went there and there was a guy – who's a good friend now, was the head stockman there and he was a bit younger than me. But, you know, between us, we had a good skill set and he was so supportive in what we did and we got on really quite well doing it. So that was, he was looking to me for assistance and I was certainly looking to him and it, it, it sort of worked well for, you know, he was there for 12 months or 14 months and it was fantastic. But it was tough, you know, the mornings you wake up and you just wonder what the heck you've done or what you're meant to be doing and then go back to what you've learned through not only your, your work life, but also your life, and it seems to come together. Well, that's what I tell everyone. I've got a question on it because, I, well, I wrote down a few things. I was like, a problem I need to help some help solving with, so let's just bring it in here. <laughs> but like, so I guess to go and take that next step, and it, for my business or for you and the different businesses that you've been in, 
backing yourself and going like, you're not going to run out of runway, but actually you need to build that team around you to then take that next step. What's your advice? And this is <laughs> advice to me on that, because that's something I'm really struggling with where I know we're kind of sitting in like a little bit of a, I'll say a safety net for the time being, where I know if I got a couple more people who are the right people, we can jump three steps ahead. Whereas at the moment, we're just taking mouse steps. Again, it's your appetite for risk, Ollie. So investing in people rapidly or before you're ready is sometimes a poor investment for them and you. So you just need to be very cognizant of where where you are, or in my case, where I was up to at a certain point in time, because you can get you can end up with the right people at the wrong time and you lose them because you're not quite ready for what it takes. I'd always say make sure that you understand people. Like so, to understand people for me, I've got to understand me. If I have an in depth understanding of who I am and what makes me work or tick or whatever the term is that we'd want to use, then it allows me to pick different traits and skill sets and personalities in people that I need to get around me. Or And that's when I say around me, I don't just mean employing or having in my team. It's also having above me in my wider network and then being being open and free with time to make the most of it. So Augustus McRae on, on Lonesome Doves, you know, he sort of indicated that he's only got so many hours in the day, so don't waste my time. And we need to be careful that when we're relying on people or drawing people in to help us, that we don't actually waste their time because they don't get that time back. So if you're going to lean into people to, to help, be mindful that that's time they'll never get back. Some of us have a lot longer to, on this earth than others, but at the end of the day, we've got to make the most of it. And so for you, like when you're in those decision-making points, how do you create the time for yourself to be able to think? Is it Do you use holidays and things, or how do you actually create that time for yourself? Uh, it's a bit of a, it can be a bit of a challenge and it's not a, it's a personal challenge. And when you're present for yourself or for your family, as opposed to not being present and, you know, the biggest trap we can have is thinking that we go home and we're with our family or in fact, we're on a device or our mind's going 90 miles an hour, you know, and your wife or kids or family are talking to you and you've got no idea what they're saying, then you're not present. And that's a challenge. You've got to really do that. And I'm by no means suggesting that I'm mastered that at all. But it's very important when you've got kids growing up, when they need you, you need to be there, regardless of what your boss or your, what the industry tells you. And I guess that's one of the hard lessons learned. And kids are not, kids are one part of it. You know, all your staff, if you're with them, but you're not, it's not good for them. It's, a, it's actually a lack of respect. And also for your leaders. So if you've got direct reports and you're not present when they're there, then it is a show of, it's disrespectful in my view. Yeah. Is that, is that something you've had to learn through your career or is it something you've been probably like, pretty mindful of? Again, you don't learn anything without making mistakes. So there's been plenty of times when I've been absent and absent-minded and it's burnt me. And you've got to be careful that as you progress through an industry or career path, and this is probably for the younger listeners, know yourself, but arrogance is never, never accepted. For you, moving has been a real constant of your career. One, how's it helped you get ahead? But also two, have you gone through those decisions like maybe with Australian country choice did you decide I'm going to stay in one place for a bit longer or when the opportunity pops up you jump well that's a great question I've never actually thought about the moving so much and again I'll refer to tomorrow I mean if she was here she would she could tell you how many times we've actually moved but I think it's opportunistic and it's I wouldn't have moved if something wasn't exciting so I think everything every move I've made has been exciting and there's probably been a stage or two in my life where 
I didn't realise that at the time, but then when you get immersed yourself into the new venture, it is exciting. So it's maybe just a, a staging. You know, time with ACC, nine years was great, but in there I had a move in the middle from ACC to ACBH, and that was a change of location as well. So we moved from Roma out to between Rocky and Mackay. So it, it went with a move, like a physical move, and then a move from the confines of ACC into creating ACBH as a joint venture company, although we had the support network of ACC, it was quite new. And so that was, you know, that was pretty exciting, but it was, like I say, if it wasn't exciting, probably wouldn't have done it. For me, there's got to be a level of excitement and challenge. Otherwise, why why do it? Yeah. Tell me a little bit about that ACBH business and what you guys established there. So it was a joint venture between the Lee family and the Acton family. And the decision by the Acton family to get in a, a, some form of a partner was made. And there was a process that we entered into. And as it turned out, we were the chosen partner to partner up with the Actons from, a, from the ACC point of view. And then we, it was a separate company completely. So the Actons had their businesses, the Lees had their business and ACBH was a joint business. But the function of that was to supply ACC with cattle through their supply chain. And it was challenging enough, you know, they they had wonderful assets and great cattle and some great people within the business, but it was probably trying to corporatise a family unit that had been through a fair bit, you know, with Graham having his accident at Clark Creek Draft and then passing away and, and the family trying to come to grips with what the joint venture meant. You know, there were plenty of challenges, but with the support of the Acton family and the Lee family and everyone involved in ACBH. So from, you know, David Foote right through to all our support people, Jim Titmarsh and ACC, who had been my boss, the whole lot of the guys there were, you know, very supportive. So, you know, it was a challenging environment. You've got two two families trying to create a wonderful business. And I'd say at the end of, you know, as ACBH went through the machinations, it was very successful. You mentioned just there around like families trying to corporatise. What were the lessons learned from that? Without wanting to go into too much detail, there is a certain point where it changes from a family business to something more. And I think if observations of, and not just ag, but throughout industry, when that when that point's missed, that's when pain starts to happen to the business and the family unit. And it's not easy to go from being the master of your destiny to having a corporate structure around you. So anyone who's growing a family business but and it's growing, it's picking the triggers and getting the right help and support to transition is very important, I think. So if we've got, I'll say, young business owners that are, I guess, trying to drive their family business forward, is there any obvious signs that your business might be at a trigger point? Oh, I think that's up to the personal people that are leading the business in the family and it's just being open to change. So I'm sure that the big accounting firms could give you a, a financial Nine metric or the lawyers could give you a lawyer view or business gurus would come up with some methodology on when you should transition. I, I probably don't subscribe to that. I think if you're the owner and the driver of that business, then then it should be organic. That When it all gets too much or you start not sleeping at night, you've probably gone too far. Yeah, <laughs> lean on someone. Well, let's talk about another business which you're involved in and, a, and another move. <laughs> Hopefully tomorrow listens to this. <laughs> Moving across across the country this time to Perth, where we're at now, Harvest Road, that decision to come west, what was it that drew you in? There was a few things. The winding up of ACBH back into the Lee, the Lee family businesses and the Acton family businesses was a catalyst for probably wanting change. 
or looking at opportunities. I'm quite confident I could have, you know, integrated back into the ACC business and continued with the work that we were doing in the ACC business, which is, you know, is an exciting space. I got a, you know, I got approached about the Harvest Road role as we were, you know, the last few months of winding the AC, ACBH business up, and I wasn't at all open to thinking or looking at it. Coming over to, you know, the, what I knew of Harvest Road and what industry knew of Harvest Road was it's a small business owned by a net worth, you know, individual being Andrew and Nicola Forrest. And I went through the process with Paul Slaughter, who's my current CEO, and and then um, I had a chat with John Hartman, who was the um, head of investments for Tatarang at the time. And then that led on to a conversation with Andrew and Nicola. And I think through the whole process, they all spoke about the values in their visions. I was very aligned with with what they were saying. And it's always a risk, you know, the, until you really know someone, you don't know whether it's rhetoric or it's real. And so I took a leap of faith, so a risk, if you like, and decided that it was real and suggested to Tamara that moving to Perth might be a great thing to do. Luckily for me, Tamara spent a lot of her schooling outside of Perth. So she grew up in WA and we'd spent nearly a decade in WA back when we were younger in the Kimberleys and then down in the South. So to my surprise, she she actually said that she'd think about it. So, and then uh, once she said that, we were gone. <laughs> <laughs> Packed the car and straight across the country. It was one thing, and I mentioned it at the beginning, that really fascinated me about the business and that building of culture. How have you, Paul, I guess the rest of the team, how do you actually build that? But then how do you make sure it practically flows down to, I, I guess, the grassroots within a business? Well, c- culture, you know, culture and values are a lot of people, a lot of companies talk about them. You know, culture's really got to be in the DNA and the way you work. So I think in Harvest Road, we've been really fortunate to have that through the business. So we conduct ourselves in leadership roles the way we'd like our team to conduct themselves from a professional and point of view. And once you start that in motion, then it, it is quite contagious. This business and my previous business being ACC and ACBH, we're quite good at showing the path forward. So the more diverse the business you're in, the more paths there are. And we might get someone turn up at one of our properties as a, as a station hand and read something about the, our oyster leases and decide that actually aquaculture is for me. So the opportunity will, may and generally does come up where we can expose them to that. And if they like it, then it's we feel like we've won, like they've, they've found their niche in life. So it's a pretty good environment to have. So culture has to be led from the top and the leaders have to believe in it. You know, if it's something that a um, consultant told you that you need to have and they've got a written document about culture, fair chance it'll be fake. It's got to be real. I think for, if I think of where I'm at in my career and you're, you're looking up so you can see, I guess, what's being emulated above and you can see it within the team around you. But once you get to... I'll say being the drivers of the organization, you don't have that place to look up anymore. Like it's, you kind of, looking down is the wrong word, but in terms of it is like you're now the the people that everyone else is looking to. So how do you, I guess, keep, I guess, keeping yourself in check or is it just as a management team, you guys do it yourselves? Oh, I think there's a bit of internal checking or development that where we do it internally, but certainly for me, it's the wider network and having a great support group around the industry. So it's just a really, you never, I don't believe you're ever at the top. You know, you might be close, but there's always somewhere where you can get inspiration. And quite often it's inspiration that's not above you. It might be the same level or below, you know, and it's just, it's how you thrive, what what you feed off to 
to get your next idea or to embrace something. And, you know, for me, it's really watching the young guys in our business and how they interact and operate with each other. And, you know, there's some great learnings there for, for an old bike to, to learn, you know, how we communicate with our young guys. Some of it I'm never going to master, but, you know, some of it I can. You know, you can always send a tweet or a bloody Instagram note out to get them to follow you. I see you're pretty good at these on the text messages, replying back with the emojis. I've got two or three that I go to. <laughs> Just the exclamation mark. He's like, what are you talking about? Yeah. One thing which I find which was really cool and also I'll say somewhat strained from the outside looking in, but you jumped in with one of your managers, Hamish, I think it was, and drove a horse truck from Queensland across. It was like a four-day trip. From the outside looking in, it's going, was there a better way you could use your time? But for you, why was little decisions like that, I guess, important for the bigger business and where it's heading? Well, Hamish is a, the, our general manager of our extensive business, so all our northern breeding and backgrounding properties, and he's, he's a young guy coming through the industry, and I just saw it as a great opportunity, A, to like reasonably like-minded people that can get in and get the job done, so that I didn't want that trip to take six or seven days. I thought it would be hard on the horses, so I wanted to get it over here. Mm-hmm. But I guess the key is that it gave me time with Hamish where there was just him and I in the truck to probably get to know each other a bit better, but for him to be able to question and ask anything about what we've decided to do because we're a very young business. We've gone from having a, a meat processing plant in the south of the state to a family-owned station by the forest in the middle of the Pilbara and now we've got a, since the business bought Harvey Beef, we've now got an integrated supply chain with 150-odd thousand head of cattle coming through the system, influencing the WA beef and cattle market in a very positive way. So you don't get the opportunity to spend time with your key people for them to understand or help question why you might do things, and that was just a great opportunity. And he couldn't get away. Like, he couldn't get out of the truck and go somewhere else, so we kind of had him. Could have made it a much longer truck drive for you without him. Yeah. From that, like your role's somewhat for traditionally red meat men, you've now got this growing horticulture side of the business as well. And you, I guess, alluded to the aquaculture side. It all works in roundabout ways. What's it like, I guess, yeah, sitting in that, I guess, at this stage of your career as well in such a diversified business? It's very exciting, Ollie. And it's very easy for us to say that something's very difficult or very unique to what we do. But, you know, if we look at our oyster business, you know, we breed them, we've got genetics that go into the breeding of them, we then, we join them, so they, we get in it with spat, we put the spat in a backgrounding paddock, which is Carnarvon, they grow out to a certain size, we harvest them or grade them and then we put them on a truck, we then take them to the feedlot, which is down in Albany, they grow out <laughs> to being the right size, we then harvest them and process and we take them to market. It sounds like I'm oversimplifying that, but it's very similar to what we do with in our beef game, breeding, backgrounding, feeding, slaughter, same as horticulture. So we plant something, we nurture it, we grow it, we get the, we try and get it to be the best possible product we can. We then harvest it and we market it. So it becomes more about what the business looks like, the business acumen, not so much the product, but then very much the people. So, you know, it is quite diverse. If you get someone that's really into sweet potatoes and agave lined up with someone who's really passionate about the ocean and oysters and fin fish lined up with someone who is really passionate about livestock, they're very different people, but you put them in the same room, it's amazing how well they come together and commonality comes in. So for you and, and the business, where are you guys heading to from here? What's next for Harvest Road? Uh, well, at the moment, it's betting down what we've done. So what we've done, that sounds like 
as a negative, bed down what we've created. Yep. We'll continue to grow on that. We've got a big focus, particularly in the um, beef businesses, of nurturing the, the industry in the state. So we, we rely on those. We've actually created a bigger problem for ourselves than we've got solutions. So by having such a large feedlot and such a big processing capacity, we're more reliant on the rest of the beef producers in the state than we've ever been. So it's how do we get that relationship and nurture that through for success. So that's going to, that'll take a bit of work because um, there's a vast range. So you go from the Kimberley right through to, you know, Albany and Esperance, such a diverse range of agriculture through there. So there's a few challenges in front of us, but more importantly, develop our, develop or as importantly, develop our people. So we've got very good leaders coming through and people to take over the business into its maturity. Another question I've got here, and it's probably something which I really gained out of the business here. So to take WA's most sustainable produce to the world, when it comes to setting a vision, like I think it's really clear to go, that's what it is. For you and the team though, how do you, because it was something I saw, whether it was Blake in Carnarvon or Bled down here at Harvey Beef, they could genuinely see, or to me, they could genuinely see how their roles and responsibilities of what they do every day actually can help achieve that. Maybe it's more of a management than a leadership question here, but how do you actually instill that and how do you create that? I think it's, well, I'd like to say organically, and it's just by the guys that are driving the businesses, understanding why they're there, but also having the appreciation that there's a the wider range of businesses. So our language doesn't change or it's being more uniform, doesn't matter whether you know, Justin from Oceans comes over and talks to the agri guys or Wayne from Processing comes into into the aquaculture or the, that doesn't matter. The COO, Mark, comes across to anyone or our head of people and culture, Catherine, it's the same language and it's the same infectious enthusiasm. So it's pretty hard and you may have seen that, Ollie, when you travelled around. It doesn't take long for it to go from, especially in the rural sector where people are quite reserved and it doesn't take long to break that down where the, then everyone's just nearly talking over the top of each other and wanting to share with you what we're doing. And I think that's infectious. And we're very lucky that we have owners that are are similar. Mm. So they're very engaged in what we do, not only across Harvest Road, across all their private businesses. It's, it's, yeah, I think that, again, from the top down, it's a waterfall type effect. Yeah, like I found it incredible being able to look at that and go, how do you recreate this? We're only a team of three, three or four, and um, like our vision is seeing agriculture play a role in making the world healthier, happier, and more prosperous. And it's like, what are the things? Like, how do you go aspirational, but then bring it back down to the tangible as well? I think mm. you guys have got it nailed. I'd like to think we're nailing it. I don't know if we've quite got it nailed. <laughs> okay, nailing. One last question, and I ask everyone, and I'll be interested with your answer. So. You get the chance to go and chat to year 10 students. What would be your message to them about why they should consider a career in agriculture? Year 10's a tough year <laughs> to, to present, but I think from definitely it's, there's so much future in ag. So if we look at everything, every industry that's around, the ag space, food and fibre is something that we're going to continue to need well into the future to just sustain and survive. The the whole environmental piece, so looking after this great earth that we've got, feeding humans or clothing humans, so our common race is, you know, very inspirational. 
It's a good, clean, healthy living generally. Amazing people globally in ag. So if you really want to get into a great environment from a people perspective, I'd be doing it. And financially, it can be quite rewarding if you are successful. Beautiful. Well, Ben, thank you for lending me three quarters of an hour of your time. (laughs) I really appreciate it. And hopefully you got a bit out of it as well. No worries. Thanks, Ollie. Appreciate it. If you enjoyed our episode with Ben this week or any of our podcast episodes, please hit subscribe, share it with a friend, or just go and listen to one of our other episodes. We love sharing these stories more than, I think it's over 160 now. I'm going to stop talking, give you a little bit more time to go and tune in. If you haven't checked out, we do have another podcast as well called In The Know, On The Go. It's a firecracker. It's a bit of fun. We've got some really good series coming up on it. So get around it. See ya.